Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Some of you were the fact that my father, who's a psychiatrist by training, is a pilot um, by hobby. He learned how to fly in the army, not military planes, but we were living in an army base for the f- uh, most of the first two years of my life in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. My father as a psychiatrist in the army base. And he had uh, time on his hand, and there was uh, an opportunity for him to learn something he'd always been, been interested in. And so he learned how to fly a plane. You know, two-seater airplanes, four-seater airplanes, six-seater airplanes. And so we would go up a lot. When I was a child, we would take family vacations, um, uh, hopping around from here to there. It was quicker, sometimes quicker to get there by plane than by driving. Sometimes it was quicker by driving because the number of, of, uh, the number of, number of times we checked the plane and things had to be fixed at the last minute before we could fly uh, made it less logis- logistically simple as we would have thought. But it was still a great thrill. And I remember talking to my father a lot about airplanes, and I learned um, my my first kind of, one of my first economic insights about the value of things came when he mentioned something to me about how planes are different than cars. Most cars, except for collectibles, depreciate over time, right? You know, what percentage of a car's value is lost when you drive off the lot? Right, which is why some people like to buy a car off of a lease because it uh, hasn't been driven that much and it's much, much less expensive than buying it new. Right? Um, airplanes, for the most part, if they're maintained well, appreciate in value. Right? I, I suppose you can get a bargain here and there, but if you're looking to buy you know, a two-seater, a four-seater, a six-seater airplane, it's very likely that the same exact um, machine and vehicle is more expensive now than it was a few years ago. Partly because it may have been updated with more equipment because the equipment keeps getting better and better, but partly because it's just something that continues to, uh, to grow in value. Most other stuff, including cars, are at their apex of value when they are created at their inception. Right? Um, there are e- exceptions to that. Antiques, right? they might appreciate in value. Rarities, baseball cards that have been around a long time and that are rare. Wine might appreciate in value over time. Most things are at their greatest utility and greatest value when they are first used. A chair, a shulchan, a book, right, is at its best performance or best utility the first time it is used. Compare that thing, which is the case regarding most objects, most things in the universe, to the utter vulnerability of an infant. We were all infants. Many of us have raised infants. And it's pretty shocking, particularly when you think about comparing it to other places in the animal kingdom, how little a human infant is able to do on its own, almost nothing, completely useless, Right? Understand what I mean by that. Treasured, beloved, but it can't do anything in the world yet. By the way, that's a difference between humans and many other animals, including mammals. Right? You've seen videos. It's amazing to see you know, a, a deer being born in the wild or even an elephant. It's born. 
The mother kind of nudges it with its nose or kicks it a little bit, and in a few seconds, the gazelle is off running. Uh, I would have uh, loved had my children been able to do some things for themselves within a few hours of being born, right? Uh, Human babies are incredibly helpless, and then they have a trajectory, unlike a book or a car or a chair, a little bit more like an airplane, where their value, their abilities, their utility, the extraordinary aspects of them, of us, continue to grow. Don't apex until way, way, way after our inception. We are not at our best our few, sec- few seconds after we are born, whereas most things in the universe are. Okay? There are exceptions, of course, but you get the paradigm. With that in mind, I want to share with you a commentary that is connected to one aspect of Pesach by the Nitivot Shalom. The Nitivot Shalom was the book. Where it was, sometimes rabbis, particularly um, well, medieval and Hasidic rabbis, are known by the names of their most famous work. So this rabbi is Rabbi Shalom Noam Berezovsky. He lived from 1911 to the year 2000. He was born in what's now Belarus and then lived in Jerusalem. He was known as the Slonimer Rebbe. He was the, um, the scion of the Slonimer Hasidic dynasty. Slonim is right near the town where he was born. And his main work, which is the commentary on the Torah, is called the Nitivot Shalom. So he's sometimes referred to as the Nitivot Shalom, the path, paths of peace. And he's commenting on this aspect of Pesach that we spend a little bit of time on, on the Haggadah. Some people linger on it long, longer, linger longer. And that is there is a trajectory in the story of the Jewish people and a trajectory in the Haggadah itself, Mignut Leshevach. Gnut, from degradation, from lowness, to shevach, to, to a lofty place, to being a, at a place where deserving of praise. In fact, you might remember from the Haggadah that Rav and Shmuel, two Babylonian sages, disagree upon this. They don't disagree on whether or not the ark is from gnut to shevach. They just disagree as to what's the gnut and what's the shevach. One of them thinks that the gnut is avadim hayinu, physical degradation. We were slaves. And if the physical, if the, if the gnut, the degradation is physical, we were slaves, then the redemption, the shevach, is that we were liberated from Egypt. So it's a, the, the, the ark is from enslavement in Egypt to freedom. The other one says, no, 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 no. The gnut goes way before the beginning of enslavement to Arami Oved Avi. My father was a wandering Aramean. My ancestors were idolaters. That's the low point. That's the gnut. Before the beauty of monotheism, when we worshiped idols and pagans. And therefore, if that's the case, if the low point, if the gnut is idolatry, then the shevach is not just leaving Egypt. Wait for it. It's Shavuot. It's getting the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's committing to a relationship with the one God. Okay. So there's a difference of opinion as to which are the trajectories we should be focusing on on the Haggadah. But everyone agrees that that is the trajectory. And the Nitivot Shalom asks, why is that such a central theme in the Jewish story? Why, when the Torah and the Haggadah is leading us through the story of an Exodus moment, do we focus on this ark from low to high? 
And he spent some time in this commentary talking about what we began talking about, which is that the more physical something is, usually, usually in the, in the reality that we inhabit, the more physical something is, the more potent its power and strength is when it is created. The more something is of physical, material substance and not spiritual, conceptual substance, usually its power is greatest when it is created. We went through some examples. We can list more. A car newly minted. Your iPhone never worked better than the first day you got it. You may have had to learn how to work it better, but it as a machine, before the battery started to drive you crazy, before the apps you know, um, slowed down, before it showed its probably engineered obsolescence so that you have to go buy another one, it worked spanking new quite beautifully. Or a car battery, or a, the battery in these microphones that have to be replaced all the time. Food, right? Food is a physical object a physical thing, and unless you're specifically talking about preserves, food is better fresh. There is a decay that is natural in the physical world. Things tend to deteriorate in reality and to depreciate or become obsolete, sometimes intentionally so. The exception to that, the Nintivot Shalom shares with us, is life itself. The, the, the part of of, of, of our material selves, which is alive, right? Start with the world of vegetation. Begins with a seed. It moves from a pretty useless little dot to a curious sprout, sprout, and then to the glory of a tree or a vegetable or a flower. The movement from life is from nothingness to extraordinary qualities. And life in the living, in the animal kingdom as well, particularly mammals, it begins with a seed. It begins to form and show itself to be not a nothing but a something, and then birth, and then maturity, and then splendor. And our tradition in particular reminds us not, never to disregard, God forbid, but rather to honor, to venerate those who've lived long lives. Because like wine, we age well and have our greatest wisdom. And even if we lack some of our physical strength towards the end of our lives, it's certainly well past the halfway point of a long life. We grow with vigor as we age. Then Etivot Shalom says that while that distinction is clear between the inanimate world and the animate world, it's even more clear, as we hinted at before, between all other living things in general and the human world in particular. So remember those elephant and those deer who are pretty able from the moment they're born. They had to gestate, but from the moment they're born, they're pretty able to do deer and elephant-like things. The sages of the Talmud said, Shor ben yomo karui shor. A bull that is a day old is called a bull. It's, it's already quite bull-like. It'll grow. Its muscles will, will, will um, develop but it already looks and acts like an adult bull. Not true of a two-day-old human being. We look at a two-day human being and we know that they're human, but they're not quite acting in the ways that make a human distinctly human. Most animals, in some ways, are born near their ability, apex, near their potency. 
But humans, the Netibot Shalom said, Hamadaber, that's his way of referring to a human being, a, a, a speaking living thing, a human. Sheyoter gadol b'ma'alato, who has ultimately greater value in the world, according to this approach. Matchil b'gnut, begins in a place of lowness and, and almost lack of utility and vulnerability and reliance on others. If you compare an infant to an elder in terms of what they can contribute to the world and society, an infant has all potential, but no actual value yet. The Niti Vochalom goes on to say that there is some nobility into this trajectory, which is true of the living world over the non-living world and true of the human world over the rest of the living world. We are different than inanimate objects, and we humans are even different than most things that are alive. It's a version of the halachic concept of ma'alin b'kodesh, that we go up in sanctity rather than descend in what's special about us. And according to the Nitivot Shalom, to embrace that trajectory means naming and embracing the low beginnings. In other words, the ark doesn't make sense as a glorious thing unless you're totally okay and totally accept the fact that we start like almost nothing. The amazing thing about a bar mitzvah is that it wasn't that long ago that the child could do very little for him or herself. The amazing thing about a graduation from university is that the person knows so much more and is so much more capable of delivering to the world than they were four years ago. And the amazing thing about the wisdom that accrues over time is that it's exponentially more interesting and significant to the world than the tiny amount of consciousness we have when we're three or five or seven. Nothing against children, but they're not yet anywhere close to what the world will be able to get from them. That gnut, it's weird to think of as a child as gnut. There's nothing degrading about them, but less than in terms of what they're going to be, you have to own that and accept that in order for the apex to make any sense when you get there. The Sloaner Murebi in this commentary in the Haggadah makes a bit of a jingoistic turn at the end. He compares the, na- the, the nation of the Jews, the Jewish nation, to all other nations. What he says about them, it has some truth to it. So just linger with me for a second, although I wouldn't embrace the totality of what he's trying to say. He said, other nations start strong and they ebb. They start with bangs. And then over time they deteriorate. But not the Jewish people. We began as a nothing so many times. And we get stronger and stronger and stronger and we reinvent ourselves. There, listen, he's more of a Rebbe than he is a historian. But there's a, some truth to it, right? The Holy Roman Empire was at its apex quite at the very beginning of its time. And then slowly over time, its power diminished until it was never heard from again. How many nations do not exist? Right? How many nations have we outlasted? We don't have to, it's not overly jingoistic just to say that. How many nations have we outlasted? I'd like to think that the United States of America, a strong democracy that is facing all sorts of threats to its strength and to its democracy, I'd like to think that in 100, 200, 500, 800,000 years it'll be around. Am I certain of it? I don't know. Nations have half-lives. And nations in some ways, are more like the inanimate objects that reach their strength rather early on and as the forming idea of the nation dissipates 
as the homogeneity of the nation changes, which is, I think, a good thing in terms of human culture, but it changes what is core about an original, an original nation, the notion of that nation can diminish over time. Nations reach pinnacles and then they hit their descent. I'm not wishing for it, but it's happened over and over and over again in time. The Jews, the Jewish people, as the historian Simon Revadovich wrote, are an ever-dying people, which means we're an ever-rebirthing people. And at each rebirth, a greater strengthening. Could anyone have imagined that the pogroms of the 19th century or the devastations of the early 20th century would lead to Medinat Israel in the middle 20th century? It goes against historical trends, but not necessarily against Jewish trends. Mignut Leshevach, from the lowest place, from the ashes and the embers of the Shoah to national independence, from destruction of the Second Temple to the birth of rabbinic Judaism and a prayer world that still exists today. Pick your moment in Jewish history where we have gone back to gnut, to lowness, to lack of power, to lack of ability to self-organize, to an efflorescence of ideas and things that were contributing to the world and ways that were strengthening our own society. I'm wondering right now, as a leader in the Jewish community, I try to be a leader in the Jewish community, how our Jewish community will find a way to get stronger towards a new apex even from this mini moment of crisis. We are in crisis, my friends. I don't know what this is going to yield to. I don't know what the status of the, non, of the non-profit Jewish world is going to be when this emerges. I hope that we, Temple Beth Am, and all the Jewish institutions that we care about in Camp Ramah and the American Jewish University and the Bureau of Jewish Education and on and on and on, I hope that we're able to reach shevach, praise, that might seem elusive and illusory now that we're experiencing a moment of gnut. But we Jews know this pattern and therefore perhaps we can embrace it with a fuller heart. And if we pull out from just the Jewish question, if this is Gnut, if this seventh day of Pesach, this middle of April, April 15, 2020, as society is a month into truly an unprecedented, radical turn on the dime and slowdown and morbidity and financial worry, if this is Gnut, a Jew is trained to think and plan for what is the shevach? What is the apex that we will evolve to into this as opposed to only worrying about how we're going to descend further into the depths? Where are we going in this trajectory? I refuse to submit that we are only going down. My Jewish training teaches me that there is a way to go up. What beauty will be born into the world only as a result of what we experienced in this low place? And how do we find a way to embrace, yes, to embrace, not in a Pollyanna way, but to embrace this gnut, this degrading moment as a critical station on the way to what ultimately be worthy of shevach, of praise? And I ask you, and I ask myself, 
what will you personally launch and initiate and give life to and give birth to that will continue our individual, communal, and national ascent? We are once again living the rhythms of the Pesach story, experiencing a certain narrow enslavement that could lead us to utter despair, the Jewish response is, look ahead to that mountain, to that promised land, which we will arrive at if we can embrace the journey we are on and muster our strength in God's presence and with one another's support to arrive there. May we start working on it right away. And Chag Sameach, Gujantif. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.